Well, hey, folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to This Week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at the progressive paper of record. Thank you to the Institute for Cultural Evolution for inviting me to do this every Friday and to be part of the post-progressive project. And today is Friday, October 15th, 2021. So I wanna spotlight a few stories here today, which I think illuminate the theme of my work and the Institute for Cultural Evolution. <laughs> and that is to point out the emergence of cultural evolution. And one of the most obvious patterns in human evolution since day one is ever increasing social complexity, consciousness complexity as well, but social complexity. So we grow from bands to tribes, to clans, to kingdoms, to states, to nations, and human complexity continues to increase, not just in sheer size in terms of, um, you know, the number of people that we know and the amount of the world that we are able to comprehend. Uh, but this deep structure uh, actually has us continue to transcend uh, the, the social structures so that we're moving from nations to the creation of a human culture that is global. And that is predictable in human evolution. And uh, I think it's happening. And it brings me to the first story that I wanted to look at today. And that is this deal that I think is going to be uh, uh, rat, uh, ratified today but this is from an article a few days ago, the deal to set the minimum tax gets closer. And this is a minimum, glo minimal, minimum global tax. And the article reads, the most sweeping overhaul of the international tax system in a century is poised to take a significant step forward this week with nearly 140 countries expected to settle on a 15% global minimum tax rate. The framework under construction includes new rules that would force technology giants like Amazon and Facebook and other big global businesses to pay taxes in countries where their goods or services are sold, even if they have no physical presence there. And this has been pushed for some time and I guess has been taken over the finish line here. It includes Russia, China, Japan, all the EU. And, um, uh, you know, there are people who, the, the article goes on to talk about, you know, the situation as it has been, which is people have, have referred to as the race to the bottom, where countries continue to lower their, lower their corporate rates and get corporations going there and moving there and they make money in the short term till another country lowers them even more. And so this isn't uh, the uh, solution to that. And people worry about exceptions and worry about enforcement, but everybody seems to agree, including the New York Times here, that it is a milestone. And it gets to the issue of how world centrism arises in human evolution, because that is what is arising. We call it the green meme or the, the progressive worldview that, that we move from being uh, identified with our nation or a clan, race, whatever, into you know being a citizen of the world. And 
mostly the moves into um, world centrism happen in first and second person. So they happen in terms of our consciousness, what we're aware of, our travel, how we talk to people in the internet all over the world, you know, and, and, and all that, that's first and second person. But this is a real kind of hardcore third person. This is the lower right quadrant for those of you who know aqua theory. And this is an actual law that will be enforced. And, um, and you know, it, it's not like, and this, this is where I think post-progressive uh, view can help. The, the progressive fantasy is often that there's going to be some sort of a world government, you know, installed in some city like a giant Washington DC with Martin Sheen as president, preferably. Uh, but likely it's going to be, you know, I'm not sure that that won't happen in some far off future, correct? Something like that perhaps will. But we will work our way towards that. We will fight and friend our way towards that. And we will do it with what we're, we've been doing it with, treaties and alliances and NGOs and agreements like this. And, you know, there's a lot of contention. There's a lot of cat and mouse. There's wrong turns. There's dead ends. But there is that steady movement. We can see it through history, and there's no reason it will stop. So um, that is, um, you know, something that we want to note. And we also want to sort of see, so what's the post-progressive view here? What's the, you know, what's integral theory uh, tell us about this? And um, if integral, which is the stage that we're talking about with, uh, in terms of development of post-progressive stage, if that is indeed the integration of the best of the previous stages of development, then we would see that we want to be world-centric. Yes, indeed. We actually want to be cosmocentric, and that's that's really the integral move. Um, you know, we we think of green as being world-centric. In orange, or modernism is um, world-centric in the exteriors, in, in the sense that it can fight global wars, it can exploit global capitalism, and all that good stuff. And then, at green post-modern progressivism we develop a sensitivity for global culture. And at Integral, we develop a sensitivity to the animating energetics of the cosmos itself, including mainly evolution itself. We see evolution. Uh, and, and so it's, it's actually, we're starting to see these bigger patterns that are deep structures of the cosmos. Um, and when we think of this integration, we do want to vibe at that. We want to vibe at world-centric. We want to vibe at nation-centric, you know, patriotism and, uh, you know, that feeling of the history and karma of, this, of one's nation and people. We want to have that light up. Um, also clan, family, intimate relationships. We want, we can see the chakras, you know, that, that we have that sexual intimate chakra, we have the family chakra, we, and we want to have all of that lit up um, in order to be a fully functioning human being. And that is, you know, we're working on that, but that is a, sort of an integral view of that. But world, world centrism is happening, uh, and it is happening, as I said, in the third person in terms of this minimal global, minimum global tax. 
but also in first and second person. And this gets me to another story that I wanted to talk about. And that is the uh, controversy around Facebook and Instagram, and particularly this latest sort of iteration of this story that comes back time and time again, where I think it was a couple of weeks ago now, the Wall Street Journal reported on what Facebook's internal research shows about how Instagram, their platform, affects the mental state of the roughly 22 million teenagers who log onto it every day. And the significant uh, percentage, particularly of young girls who develop body image issues and anxiety and depression and suicide that is at least correlated if not caused by these platforms. And the New York Times has been very hard on these platforms. Uh, and um, until today, there was a, a significant article that was in, in that sort of brought, I think, a measured view of the other side. And I'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to read from Ross Douthat, who wrote a column a week or so ago on how Facebook should not be available to children. Social media ought to be off limits to children. Just seal it off, as he says. And um, this is also the theme of a editorial that was written by Greg Bensinger after the um, uh, testimony by this Francis Hogan on, uh, in, in Congress uh, last week. So anyway, here's what Ross Douthat writes. And I read from him because he's such a beautiful writer and he really captures things. So here's what he says. The rise of big tech and social media presents a series of difficult, perhaps intractable problems for Western societies. Our internet behemoths are effectively immense media companies pretending to be neutral platforms, feasting on the revenue that once sustained the old media ecosystem while disclaiming normal forms of editorial responsibility. Their key products are agents of decentralized suspicion, generating information overload and feeding both populist paranoia and centrist hysteria. Meanwhile, their leaders run, their leaders run transnational pseudo-governments exerting traditional political powers, cultural censorship, political banishment, the structuring of vast marketplaces, which is what he says is typically traditional political powers without clear lines of political accountability. And that is, I think, a beautifully stated case against the social media platforms. And again, the consensus of the New York Times uh, seems to be uh, regulated, uh, get the age verification system worked out so that at least parents can keep their kids off if they want to. And secondly, to regulate it in terms of uh, adding some editorial responsibility. And I think those are both you know, reasonably good moves. Uh, I was um, also encouraged to read today by a, a, one of their newer op-ed columnists, Farhad Manju, who skews towards technology and his claim to fame recently has been 
really, um, <laughs> it's very progressive in, in a way. It's, it's um, um, sort of pulling the rug out of these billionaires and all their philanthropies and, and, and sort of re revealing the sort of corrupt qualities of that. And I won't get into that because I'm sort of uh, just remembering it, but that's the, he's done several articles uh, on that. But here he writes, Farhad Manju writes, the upside of social media, the moral panic engulfing Instagram. And he writes, in jumping to the conclusion that Facebook's Instagram platform and other social media services will be the ruin of the next generation, we, the news media in particular and society in general, may be tripping into a trap that has gotten us again and again, a moral panic in which we draw broad alarming conclusions about the hidden dangers of novels, novel forms of media, new technologies or new ideas spreading among the youth. And he talks about media narratives that once sent the culture into hair singed worry, things like satanic panic of the 1980s, are witches running your child's daycare center? The sex thing scare of the late 2000s and the widely exaggerated fears in the 1990s that urban gangs posed a terrible threat to public safety. And then he goes on to talk about Frances Huggins' testimony and uh, what she presented to the, she's the whistleblower from Facebook. He says, much of the evidence is correlational and the same leaked documents also show that many teenagers appear to think that in many ways, Instagram plays a more positive role in, a more positive role in their lives than a negative one. In the survey Hogan pointed out to, many teen boys and girls said Instagram alleviated their loneliness, their family stress and sadness, while many also said it had no impact either way. And he finishes by saying, today for better or worse, the world runs on social media. Do I want my children to grow up without understanding its dynamics, its risks and its possibilities? Will a ban turn them into social outcasts? If I stop them from using the app where all their friends hang out, am I acting like the stodgy dad who wouldn't let his kids listen to Elvis? Yeah, and I like that. He actually, in the article, also agrees to limits on children, particularly age verification. That seems to be a real key here, and more regulation in general in terms of in terms of editorial responsibility. So, um, you know, that is um, the, what I would say about uh, social media is that both of those things are true. Uh, it it, uh, it like all new um, emergence, they have a downside, you know, um, especially when they somehow um, fill a hunger that we have in a, in a deep way. And I, I think literally of hunger, you know, for most of human history, people chased calories and, you know, there was real starvation and, you know, deprivation. 
And uh, so the hunt for calories was central to human existence until about 100 years ago, when the problem became too many calories because we developed this industrial production of them that has resulted in the new problem being too many of them and obesity and diabetes and all the, the problems of affluence. And, the, uh, and that's true of social media. There is a deep hunger in human beings to connect. Uh, and it can be either way. It can be to connect to fight or connect to love and friend and share and trade. And that those are deep structures. And, uh, you know, for most of human history, I think of my grandparents, you know, they knew maybe 50 people. And, um, you know, they lived in their small towns and that's typical of that traditional stage of development. And then modernity comes along and post-modernity comes along with um, this means of connecting to anybody, infinitely hearing any argument, um, the law of infinite cornucopia, the idea that there is a, uh, a legitimate argument that can be made for any point of view for whatever reason you want to make it. And <laughs> there's just enough there to do that. And so we are choking on it. Uh, and we are overdoing it. There is a, there's a junk food quality to a lot of what's on the internet. And the solution will be, you know, regulation. It's like, the, you know, even with the, the food system, there's only so much mouse poop you can put in your cornflakes and sell it to the public. And there's lots of regulation around that for just public health. Uh, I think we're getting hip to that with social media as well. And the key, uh, certainly one of the keys, and probably the central one, is the ability to self-regulate to uh, get hip to what it is to eat sugar all day and to not do it. As we see so many people, obesity is actually going down in the United States right now. And that is because we're just getting, it's not because there's less calories available, it's just that people are getting a better understanding of it. So that's what's happening with social media as well. And I do wanna, um, you know, just, make sure that the, and Manju didn't really talk about this, the uh, yes, uh, um, uh, social media allevi alleviates loneliness uh, and so forth, but it does more than that. It is a, you know, it's, it's just a, a source of infinite education and consciousness raising. I think of Reddit and um, these communities of people, teenagers, uh, young Muslims, uh, these sex subreddits, sex communities, where they're talking about love, romantic, sexual problems. It's a mass therapy that is going on that is very, very fruitful. And young people today, I think of you know, the way the old folks talked about my generation when we were the young people. It's like, oh, you poor young people out there, this crazy, kooky world, I pity you. And we feel that way for our children and grandchildren. Um, and, um, you know, I think we need to have a little more of a radical belief or faith in the um, wisdom of humanity that continues to evolve with all of the ways that we can go wrong. <clears throat> so that is, um, I thought that was interesting that, that, that they ran that. 
Um, the third article I want to take a look at, this was recommended to me. And by the way, if you see anything in the New York Times that you think uh, illuminates a cultural evolutionary emergent, uh, send it to me, jeff at dailyevolver.com. And this was recommended by a listener. And it's a critique of the Ford Motor Company's ad introducing their new truck of the future, uh, their new all-electric Ford F-Series lightning truck that they're going to start selling next spring. And they've been running this ad. And this is written by the Peter Baker, and he's a cultural reporter. This isn't really about the, you know, uh, economics or anything like that, but it was in the New York Times Magazine. And so he describes the commercial, and since uh, some of you may be listening without the video, video, I'll just read it because you can get a very clear idea of what the commercial does. And you can also look it up on YouTube. It's for the Ford uh, all-electric lightning F-series pickup truck. Okay, he describes a commercial. A two-story house stands alone against the night sky. We're watching from off in the distance, but the warm lights inside make it look cozy. Then a bolt of lightning shoots down from the sky. Thunder claps. The lights go out, plunging the home into darkness. Outside, a gray-haired man in a cowboy hat switches on a flashlight and stands next to his vintage pickup truck, surveying the property. Something is coming down the road. It's another pickup truck. Close up on the grill, it's a Ford. A firm masculine Ford, a, a firm masculine voice starts narrating. Take the familiar and make it revolutionary. A woman gets out of the Ford, runs a cord from the darkened house, plugs it into the side of her truck, and voila, the lights come back on. The narrator of the commercial says, take the truck our parents used to build this country and make it so it can power our homes. That's the new revolutionary idea. So Baker continues, he says, this ad titled Make It Revolutionary and directed by Chloe Zhao, who directed No Man Land, um, ends at the house where it began. After dinner, the older man heads outside where his daughter's electric Ford is parked next to his classic model. We see them standing by the new truck, admiring its features. Old and new, gas and electric, male old timer and female face of tomorrow stand comfortably side by side, the line of tradition running between them. Take who we are and make Take who, take who we are and make it into where we're going, the narrator says. Now there's an idea. Okay, so that's the commercial. So Baker's critique. He says, advertisements have always told us that by buying one new product, we can improve our lives. Increasingly, though, they're promising something different. Now they suggest we can buy our way into maintaining the lifestyle we already have. Armed with products made from new materials, steel, straws, hemp t-shirts, or redesigned so they don't belch offensive exhaust such as electric vehicles. The status quo 
these advertisements promise can stay without so much ecological damage. In America, the company's Ford's F-Series pickups have outsold every other vehicle of any type for, for, 39, for 39 years running. Pickup trucks constitute about half of Ford's total sales and probably an even higher percentage of its profits. They are what Ford customers want. So great, right? Not so fast, according to Peter Baker here. He says, they're what Ford customers want, but that doesn't mean they're what customers should have. Pickups are, by most accounting, a menace. And then he goes on to describe their menace. Uh, compared with sedans, they're most likely to hit pedestrians and more likely to injure or kill them. Dittos for SUVs, more of everything to make compared with small cars, um, so forth. Um, <laughs> SUVs are funny. Talk about moral panics. I remember when SUVs uh, came down the pike in uh, whenever it was the 90s and all my liberal friends were very, you know, anti-SUV and, and now they're all driving them. But uh, uh, some of them are hybrids and, you know, the beat goes on here. So anyway, Peter Baker goes on. He says, internal combustion engines need to go away. Increasingly though, experts agree that this should just be the start that any vision of an environmentally sustainable future will have to involve many fewer cars and smaller cars and a great deal less driving, period. Similar transformations can be expected across the economy and in all of our lives. Any future we can believe in will be desirable less for what it shares with the past and more for how it veers into new directions. To get there, it will not be sufficient to simply replace our current purchases and our current lives with slightly more efficient ones. We will have to let many old habits slip away and replace them with new ones. This is by definition a revolutionary idea, not just one you're likely to hear in a com car commercial anytime soon. So uh, earlier in the article, I, I didn't mention, but he, com he complained that the commercial never mentioned climate or environment, that the, those were the benefits of this electric truck, which of course there, there are. And this, this, what he just wrote here at the end is why uh, they didn't mention <laughs> the, the environmental or climate benefits of the electric truck. Because most of their buyers uh, recognize the hidden agenda, uh, the hidden social agenda, economic agenda, cultural agenda, that is embedded in the progressive environmental movement. And, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's that line, I love this, this line just makes traditionalists uh, hair stand on end. Increasingly though, experts agree this should, this should just be the start, these experts, that we need smaller cars that'll a great deal less driving and so forth. And, um, and so I point out that this is um, the green religion for better and worse, actually. I don't necessarily mean that as a, as a critique, but the environmental religion of green is not just about the environment. It's about remaking society into the smaller beautiful view. And, and I actually think they're right. Uh, I think that that will 
ultimately happen. Human beings will get ever more wise where we, you know, we actually do want these lower, these earlier stages of, you know, family and, and, and embeddedness in an environment to in less hustle and bustle and materialism and running around and um, you know, the less is more thing is probably in, inevitably in our future. But the short term and medium term, uh, the, the, the culture war, you know, the, the, the environmental movement just makes themselves toxic to traditionalists who actually like their pickup trucks and modernists too, who, you know, they just want them both to shut up both sides to shut up and let them, you know, make money. Uh, but that is, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's that um, you, you can, you can, it's identifiably, it's identifiable easily by people who are, feel that climate is an urgent and existential threat, climate change, and are against nu nuclear power. Uh, that is, um, you know, because they actually don't want the same lifestyle to continue, only environmentally um, uh, sustainable. They want a new society. Again, I think they're going to get it, uh, but this is the contour of the culture war in the short and medium term. And I think this uh, article uh, uh, illuminates it beautifully. And, um, you know, thanks for sending it. And, um, yeah. I think we'll close here and thank you for listening to another episode of This Week in the New York Times. I'm here every Friday and uh, there's a bunch you can find on the Post Progressive Post. Check out the Post Progressive Post. It's, um, you know, uh, attempting to lay out the territory that is to come where the, the great truths of progressivism and also modernity, traditionalism and uh, earlier stages are integrated into a, a new, um, more uh, uh, flexible and uh, potent worldview, right? Right. Okay, see you next week, folks.